0: text this morning is uh, printed in the bulletin. But if you have a Bible handy, go ahead and open up because I would like to read from Philippians 2, uh, from verse 1, to give us some context for this uh, this passage. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has ex- highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our text for today Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now. Not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all, Likewise you should be glad and rejoice with me. Grass withers and the flower falls, but God's word He tells us stands forever. Will you pray with me. O oh Lord, we have come to you this morning in our various places, homes and uh, family gatherings, and some by ourselves. Hopeful. Hopeful for this, your creation. Hopeful for the power of your word at work in our lives. Hopeful that the work of Jesus Christ accomplished would be felt deeper and experienced more fully, personally. Will you do these things in Jesus' name? Amen. If you've been with us for a while, you know that uh, we've been skipping around through the book of Philippians. We started in chapter 3 with some New Year's resolutions as the Apostle Paul was listing out his accomplishments. And then saying he counts all of those accomplishments which, which were significant as loss, as nothing, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. He's given up everything for him. He said, let's look back on the year before us. And rejoice at what the Lord has done, but also look forward and rejoice even more at how Jesus has accomplished his purposes and his promises and is continuing to fulfill those things in and through our lives. Now, then we jump back to chapter 1. And then we went forward when the pandemic Kind of started, and we looked at uh, the, the anxiety passages and thinking in certain ways and and, and living, acting in certain ways. And, and now we've come back to, to chapter two, which is a little bit reminiscent of chapter three where we started. And that is Paul turning the mirror, turning the mirror of applying the gospel to himself onto the people of Philippi in such a gracious way and calling them to follow his own example, the example that we looked at last week of Timothy and Epaphroditus, two other disciple, disciples of Christ, apostles or, or, or preachers of the good news, teachers, and to live out to live out the example that they've seen because of what Christ has done for them. Sometimes the question is asked, Are we saved by faith or by works and creating this false dichotomy as if our faith could somehow exist apart from a life that's changed by the truth and reality of the Gospel. And at the heart of that change, at the heart of that change is a release not only from our anxieties and fears, but a release from our vain pursuits of self-glorification, of self-sufficiency, of self-security. And we're freed to live and give our lives for others because Christ has given his life for us. In fact, that is the heart of the soul of the Christian life, is that our whole life in existence is no longer for ourselves, but it's for the sake of other people. Now, you can logically play this out in a lot of places, but you can see it most especially here in in Philippians and in other parts of the New Testament as Paul's applying the gospel. He makes this this logical and also uh, argument that comes directly from prophecy in saying, look, it's better. It's better for everybody. It's better for me. It's better for you. It's better for everybody if we would escape this life, this world, And be with Christ. Because the promise of the the resurrection, the promise of the eternal life, the promise of a new heaven and new earth is a life where sickness and suffering and death does not exist. And Paul says this very clearly. He says, it would be better, chapter 1, it would be better for me... He's in prison. He's facing the possibility of life, a life, set of an execution sentence. He said, "It would be better for me if I were to go and be with Christ, because I'd be free from all these. I'd be with the people who have gone before me, who are free from all this." But he says, "God has given me, that is Paul, and all of us by extension, this purpose of living this life right now, and that is so that, so that salvation would reach." Many, many more in this humanity. If you think about that for a second, there's there's no other good reason for stay of entering into that bliss. Even procreation, even having children is an extension of that blessing. We live in this world So that the salvation that Jesus has accomplished would be proclaimed uh, in Judea and in all of Israel and, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, and also that many other generations would come and believe. And so not just in a spiritual sense, but in a very real sense, our lives are entirely purposed for the sake of others as Christians. Now, for most of us, we live in sort of this tension. We want to accomplish our goals. We want to see great things accomplished in, in our lives. We want to uh, have other people see our accomplishments. Just this week, Mandy and I were watching the movie The Natural. And and uh, you remember the 1984, if you've not seen it, it's on Netflix right now. The Natural about a baseball uh, phenom who is uh, going to be better than everybody else. And uh, his career takes some unexpected terms. But... Turns and, and it's, a, it's a fascinating story. But his statement, you know, why does he want to play baseball as an old man coming back after 16 years not playing? He says, So that everyone, when I walk down the street, would say, There goes Roy Hobbs, the greatest there ever was. And most of us live in this tension in this life where we want to be known as the greatest there ever was. When we as Christians know that we've been called to pour out our lives as a drink offering for the sake of other people. Did you pick that up? The language that's used in here, part of the reason I skipped forward way back when, or to chapter 4, was because this is a tough passage to preach. There is a lot going on in these few verses. Verse 12 to, to, uh, to 16 and really to, to 18, I extended it out a little bit. There's a lot going on, and most of it is around this Old Testament imagery. It's sort of characterized by the the, the language of sacrifices. He says, you know, if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, is this picture that we have no firsthand experience of. It's a picture of an animal sacrifice being brought, but in place of the animal sacrifice, the lives of the people being brought, not that they would be killed, but that they would give fully of themselves. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, this is actually language that comes from there where the firstborn of the womb of animals and human beings are dedicated to the Lord, given to the Lord, and for animals, that means that they're sacrificed, and uh, either uh, whole anyway. They're sacrificed. They're they're, they're literally killed, uh, and some are eaten by the people. But for humans, it never means this. It always means that that firstborn is dedicated for service for, to the Lord in some special or extra way. Maybe extra labor at times, or something. The firstborn is called holy to the Lord. The firstborn has that, that special, that significance, not because the firstborn is smarter, the firstborn is better in some way, or even the firstborn being more pure, but because the firstborn represents the first fruits. The gifts that God has given to his people in provision, people themselves. That's why our offerings that we read about our offerings are to be first fruits not what's left over at the end it's a dedication of the first things that God gives It's recognition that God gives us if we're familiar with some of the Old Testament language this comes out, this animal sacrifice he's saying, you're the animal sacrifice and notice the, the tone of humility that Paul takes he says, I'm just the drink offering now what's the drink offering? When an animal sacrifice was offered, some of the time, not all the time, some of the time, they would take some type of wine or drink and they would pour it on top of the animal to give it a, a semblance of, of a full meal. The sacrifice was representing something that God himself was receiving, eating. And so like good meat accompanied with wine, is a, it makes it a full meal. The drink offer, offering was a secondary offering that complemented the main offering. Paul sees himself as the secondary offering to the Philippians' main offering, that their lives are this main offering that they've given over to the service of, of God and His kingdom, of Christ and His gospel. And here Paul's modeling Christ's humility. say saying, I'll pour this out. But there's 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 a bunch of other Old Testament imagery in this that is really helpful if we understand what that is. Now, before we go to the Old Testament, some more of the Old Testament imagery, let's just take a second to then ask the question, is Paul really? How important is Paul? The teacher, preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones from uh, a generation before us, makes this interesting observation related to this passage. He says... In some senses, Paul is making an argument here. He's saying, even if I die, even if I can't come to teach you anymore, continue on with the work. More than that, the work can, should, and must continue on, even if I don't come. Taking a step further, he says, in other words, the work that the Philippians are doing as a church is even more important than the work that Paul has done as an apostle and a teacher. Now, we, like to, we like to elevate our preachers and teachers and see them as, as heroes of the faith. But here's a central question of the effectiveness of any teacher. Does the work that he did continue on and even grow and expand after his retirement or death or removal? Or does it diminish? Is the preacher-teacher, in some senses, working himself out of a job by equipping others, not just to preach and teach, but to do the work of ministry. The passage we read earlier from Ephesians 4 talks about God giving these gifts to the church, and specifically the gifts there are the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, the teachers. But did you pick up on what it says about it? It says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to equip the church for the work of ministry. The the work of ministry that Paul is writing about being done isn't the work primarily of the pastors, teachers, prophets, and, and apostles. It's the congregation. It's those who are hearing that teaching. The work of ministry in the church today has sadly fallen to a place where we look to the paid staff of the church, the pastors, the counselors, to do the lion's share of the work of ministry in the church. Not not always, by any means. But one of the things that I want to press into as a church more and more in the coming year in the form of discipleship, growing into maturity, is equipping all of us to not only recognize our spiritual gifts but to grow into them spiritual gifts are not just something that we can do easily automatically out of the box spiritual gifts are our callings they're gifts that we have certain talents often that we have but opportunities and heart conviction heart desire to engage in the work of ministry with others. Now, that takes many forms. Some people, their spiritual gift is literally the giving. That God has given them, blessed them with all kinds of financial resources, and they have a gift of giving. And one of the things, looking back on a couple of uh, weeks ago as we talked about money, that we need to be careful as a church is we never <coughs> elevate works of uh, service, of mercy, of teaching, of counseling other people as somehow higher than the gift of giving. Don't take away my ability to write a check, one person, helpfully said. It's a blessing that God has given me to be able to do. Not all of us are called to that gift. Many of us are called to enter into relationships with other people. All of us, in fact, are called to be in relationships with other people. Maybe this is a small group ministry. A smaller group where we gather together, where we wisely... But more openly than most of us are willing to do, practice some transparency with one another in sharing our burdens. The work of counseling by professional counselors in the church would be far less required if more of us would exercise the gifts that God has given and equipped us. Like a doctor, to be able to understand the gospel enough that we can apply it like medicine to another person. Now there's an element here where this is a little bit like field medicine. And there's a role for the surgeon and for the hospital and for, for the professional counselors and the pastors and teachers to do these various counseling roles. But one of the needs of the hour in the church right now is that more of us would be equipped to be field field medics, able to apply the gospel, to extend grace to those that we know in smaller groups or individually one-on-one so that, so that there would be people, more and more people in the church experiencing the grace and mobilized for the work of ministry. Now, if you hear that and you say, that is not me at all, I'm not saying you need to have this heart for it. But my guess is there's a certain percentage of people out there that are saying, I would really like to be able to do that, but I don't know the first thing about doing it. Or, I've tried to do that before and I've failed miserably and if you're in that position I, I, let me know let others in the church know identify I be, I, this is something that I do on a regular basis and I love to teach and equip other people to do a lot of people who are training to be pastors don't really have this gift they're more teachers and not really eager to do counseling that's, that's fine that's fine those people have a gift particular gift to be teachers and they need to have some practice with it they need to understand some of the giftings but notice that Paul even separates out pastor and teacher in his list in Ephesians 4 the work of ministry is a very uh, it's not so specialized that we can't have a general understanding of the gospel and all be counselors in one sense and all be teachers in one sense and all be generous in, in one sense But yet each of us, when the body of Christ is working together, each of us is actively doing the work of ministry, living out this sacrificial life, this offering that the teachers are pouring themselves into like a drink offering, like Paul. Saying, let them have the glory. Let her be the one that gets the credit for it. It doesn't need to be on camera. It doesn't need to be promoted everywhere. We don't do it for self-recognition. We do it for Christ and for his kingdom. We do it for the sake of the gospel that it would advance. We do it that God, that Christ would be glorified in all these things. We do it We do it also because it's ultimately the only way that we can experience joy and peace in this life. It's quite an upside-down type of philosophy. We go at life thinking, if, if I only had this money, if I only had these accomplishments, if I only could do this, then I would experience joy and peace in, our, in my life. But the message of the gospel frees us from those vain pursuits. And it calls us to enter into a life of service for the sake of others. And in that service, In that service we have a promise from God that we will experience joy and peace in a way that is not possible in in any other form any other method of salvation any other uh, human accomplishment or anything else now with that did you pick up on some of the uh, the language that is used throughout this passage some of it may be a little bit jarring you may have questions Do everything without grumbling or complaining. Even in my absence, obey. We've made an American pastime out of grumbling. The television show The Office is a perfect example. Hilarious, right? But it is a perfect example of how we grumble about our work, about our life, about our homes, about our family members, about our spouse, about our kids about our parents, about our friends, about our sports teams, about our little leagues, about, you can go on and on. We get skilled at the sarcasm and the the grumbling of all all these things that we would be like, uh, that we would be children of God without blemish and also um, the call to obedience as Christians. And how grumbling has become something of a national pastime. That probably got cut off. But a whole list of things that did get cut off. No, that's just where you were. Where I was. The thing about all the places we like to grumble in our life. It's characteristic. But here's where I wanted to take us to uh, uh, from this passage. And and that that unlocks how Paul's... uh, Explanation would have played out for the people in Philippi. You see, all this language is language that is directly associated with a particular event in the history of God's people, Israel. It's the language of the people of Israel, perhaps more than a million in number, who were miraculously rescued out of slavery from, from, uh, um, from Egypt, And they found themselves uh, in transit from Egypt to this land that God had promised them. And not, not after years or even months, but after just days of being in the wilderness, these people that God had rescued out of slavery were immediately discontent with the provision God had given them. And the language, the word that specifically is used, that's echoed in the uh, New Testament, that's the same word, is that they grumbled. They grumbled at their provision. In one example in the, um, the book of Numbers, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It says that they, they looked back on their life in Egypt and they missed the fish that they had gotten in Egypt because it was free and a list of other foods as well it was free they they had become so accustomed to the life of slavery and and the provision from it that they they missed they missed that food because now they were living in the wilderness and didn't have much to eat but they wanted to go back to the the slavery now, God had also provided them uh, this miraculous bread-like substance, uh, sweet bread-type substance, manna, and, and even uh, quails in the evening, quail meat uh, in, the, in the desert, in a place where nothing else was, was growing and available to them. God did provide for them. But, but the, the story that's told of the Israelites, even within these first few days, is one of grumbling and wishing they could go back to the slavery that they used to live in. language even of obedience and following God the language of um, of sacrifices was language that also came out of the same time period if you read the book of Exodus it was the same time period God was giving his people a new law a fuller explanation of his law the ways that, that life works best when we live by this law his law included these these sacrifices and the sacrificial law was a way that the people could find forgiveness for their sins atonement for their sins the law was at the same time something good but also something that reminded them of how bad they were how much they fell short and so God in his law also provided An explanation of how they could find forgiveness for their sins. It was a gracious offering. It was a gracious offering, and Paul's pointing them back to this law and our spirit, our our inclination to be like the Israelites, to look back on the things we used to have and grumble, not recognizing that we've been freed from an even greater slavery, slavery to sin in our lives now. And he's also pointing back to, to this example of the law that includes the sacrifices by which we can find forgiveness. And he ties all of that together with the offering that Jesus made for our sake as a sacrificial offering. As his call to us to come follow him and to follow him even into the difficult situations that may seem like they're wilderness wanderings. But looking ahead, even looking back on that story, that redemptive story, and seeing that God eventually does bring them into the promised land. That it's not the Israelites who get to, it's not the generation that left e- Egypt who gets to enter the land. It's mostly the next generation. And so the, the lives of those people who left Egypt is, in one sense, poured out for the sake of their children, their descendants but not just their descendants many other people from other nations come to God through that their presence there and see and hear and believe but not just those other people who are nearby but people from all kinds of generations and, and nations and tribes eventually hear the gospel that comes out of God rescuing his people from Egypt and bringing Jesus to fulfill the promise the promise of hope for the nations. Now, you say this seems like a lot, especially if you're not familiar with the Old Testament. And there's a really fascinating uh, thing here that happens. You remember that we've talked about how Philippi was this this um this city that was was founded, essentially grown up by the Roman Empire and largely Roman soldiers who were retired came here to establish a, a colony. They were paid by the Romans, so it was, a, it was predominantly Roman, Greco-Roman, in philosophy. We said that Romans like to to focus on thinking. So, what's all this getting at? Uh, wh- where, where are we going with that? What, why is is this, this Old Testament material is is uh, is confusing? It's Uh, it's extensive it's tough to read through the Old Testament but Paul goes back to the Old Testament because in the Old Testament God is laying the framework building the foundation so that we can understand what Christ is going to do for us or has done in our perspective is going to do for the Old Testament people why is Paul even needed if it's the work of the saints the work of the church and everything else in part because we need teachers who are dedicated to studying these the old testament in particular but also the new testament and understanding to apply to understand how paul is explaining these things what's maybe most fascinating of all of this is that i was just starting to say that the city is populated by the greco-roman culture Who's not even going to be as familiar with the Jewish history as the Jews are. Now there are some Jews in Philippi, and there's a group of Jews meeting to pray when the church is founded by the river. Group of Jewish women, Uh, and so maybe there are. We don't really know the mix uh, makeup, but I think one thing we can infer from this is that those Roman, those Roman people, um, take off again. Oh, don't worry about that. These Roman people. Have learned enough of their Old Testament that they can understand what Paul is writing to them. Paul's done his work; he's poured out his life for them. They understand it; they can pass it on. When we understand the work that Jesus has done in the through the lens of the Old Testament teaching, we can see our sin all the more clearly—that we are not good enough to merit God's salvation. We can see God's constant presence with his people, that he goes with them and provides for them. We can see the provision most especially of the sacrificial offerings that are necessary to work to bring forgiveness and atonement for the people. And at the end of the day, we see most clearly that Jesus is the only atoning sacrifice that truly provides for that forgiveness for us. All of the other ones just pointed to Jesus. They helped us understand, gave us a framework for understanding what he was doing. And when we see Jesus through that lens, and when we see our own lives as sacrificial offerings poured out for the salvation of others because Jesus has poured out his life for us, because Paul has poured out his life for the Philippians, because so many others through the centuries have passed that on, We're freed. We're freed from the slavery of wanting the free fish. We're freed to pursue Christ and his kingdom and to proclaim the gospel to many people. There's a a lot in this passage and if we spent more time, maybe I'll come back to it. I'm not sure. There's, There's certainly a lot more that I wanted to talk about. One of the questions... I, I will come back to this is, is just about what obedience means and uh, do we not question it says without questioning when and where do we question why don't we do this we'll take next week and uh, revisit this, uh, this passage and particularly look at the topic of what does it mean to follow in obedience and to, uh, to not question the uh, short answer is that we certainly question some things uh, and we should question some things but we uh, are called to to follow Christ unconditionally in other things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, time and for all of your blessings on us. We pray that you would help us to resolve the technical difficulties that we're having and uh, provide for us as a church. And will you um, move us uh, ahead as a church who is willing and able to pour ourselves out for the sake of others. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.